I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cullen. This is the second part of the Battle of Passchendaele, and we are going to dive right into the battle itself. So if you didn't listen to the first portion, you probably don't have the context or the build-up to the actual battle. If you want it, go back and listen. If you don't really care about that stuff, dive right in now with the Battle of Passchendaele. The bombardment that came before the first attack was shattering. For 15 days, the Allied artillery lobbed over 4 million shells from 3,100 guns, creating a continuous deadly rain. The scale of these World War I bombardments is impossible to imagine. Lance Corporal Athol Stretton gives us a glimpse, writing, quote, When a barrage commenced... The earth shook like a jelly from the firing of hundreds of guns, from whose muzzles belched forth smoke, fire, and shells. The spectacle I saw appeared like the edge of a giant rainstorm as it traversed an area of water. I could only see the near edge of the barrage and could not see into its depth for smoke and flying debris. So close together were the shells falling that we could watch a selected tree stump or piece of debris and see it hurled into the air, end quote. The hope was to blast the enemy positions into smithereens and cut the barbed wire for the infantry. It was even intended that the shell fire might not kill the enemy infantry, but if it kept them down long enough, then by the time the attacking infantry showed up, the defenders would be too discombobulated to put up any kind of real resistance. In this particular battle at Passchendaele, because the ground was so soft and the mud so glutinous, shells would sometimes just plop down, unexploded, dig themselves into the dirt, and disappear. The shelling, though, for the most part, just kind of churned up the mud, and against barbed wire, artillery proved fairly erratic. You had to have the right munitions to actually do the job of cutting the barbed wire. Successful or not, the bombardment intensified just before 4 a.m. At 3.50 a.m. on July 31st, the British attack began. Crossing the quagmire of mud and shell holes in the pre-dawn darkness, the infantry all across the line moved towards the German positions. The first attacks moved fairly quickly. Even the 136 tanks in the attack made good ground with only a few bogging down. In the north, the combined British and French forces moved as much as 3,000 yards, stopping along a small river called the Steenbeck. The center of the British line also made substantial gains, one corps even reaching 4,000 yards. By midday, the advance had moved too far to stay in communication with its artillery. Then came the German counterattack. Around two, every German gun and plane fired on the extended British center and advanced. The Germans slammed into the flanks of the outstretched British force in the center, pinching it back. Slowly, the Germans grinded and forced the British back 500 yards, inflicting heavy casualties along the way. But as was always the case, as the Germans pressed forward in the counterattack, they lost momentum and had to halt. For the next three days, there was a continuation of the assaults back and forth, with little to actually show for the violence, as both sides reconsolidated their new positions. 
Haig said of this first phase, things were, quote, highly satisfactory and the losses slight, end quote. By comparison with the Somme, this was correct. In four days, the Allies counted 7,800 dead or missing in the mud. The full accounting of dead, wounded, missing was around 35,000 Allied. German casualties I'll address at the end, um, mainly because there's no real number, so uh, we don't know, but I'm sure that German casualties in those first few days were high, you know, fairly significant as well. These first days of Passchendaele had seen movement in an area that had been stagnant for months, but the pace was alarmingly slow. The coming of rain put a pause in the action, but not the misery. For days after the first attack, rain delayed the fighting. Lord Belhaven wrote, quote, Simply awful mud, worse, I think, than winter. The ground is churned up to a depth of ten feet and is the consistency of porridge. The middle of the shell craters are so soft that one might sink out of sight. There must be hundreds of German dead buried here, and now their own shells are replowing the area, turning them up. End quote. On August 10th, there was a back and forth battle on the Gellivelt Plateau. This plateau was a flat expanse east of Ypres. The plateau was sprinkled with wooded areas and man made lakes and ponds. As the plateau was a strong point, the Germans were set on keeping it. By the end of the 10th, the Germans counterattacked from out of a smokescreen. They retook most of the ground except for a ridgeline that the British stubbornly clung to. One German officer noted that to this point in the battle, casualties were lower than in other significant actions, which, in this case, helped German morale considerably. Things would start to change for the Germans between the 15th and the 25th just not at Ypres. Near the town of Lens, some 30 miles south of Ypres, at a place called Hill 70, Germany's defense of the Ypres sector was struck a blow. The Canadian Corps took Hill 70 while inflicting heavy losses on the Germans and tied up a large group of fresh troops. It was later revealed that all the German soldiers around the hill, dead or stuck fighting, were meant to re relieve the exhausted Ypres sector front line. Though not a direct battle in the Passchendaele offensive, Hill 70 certainly affected the outcome. From the 16th to the 18th of August, Goff launched more attacks on the Gellivelt Plateau, trying to capture some of the wooded area. Over and over, the German artillery rained down on these and put an end to any hope of advance. Goff was losing his confidence, and the men were losing faith in their general. Keegan puts it best in his book, The First World War, saying of the early part of the Passchendaele Offensive, quote, Little ground was gained, much life lost, end quote. The last days of July and the entire month of August had seen almost continuous low-level action broken up by heavy fighting. As the days ticked by, though, it became apparent that this was going to be much the same as any other battle, only nastier. The Allies advance, take some German forward positions, then the Eingrief, which was the German counterattack divisions that were held a little bit behind the lines, would sweep in and take back what was lost. If that failed, the German counterattack would still succeed in causing heavy casualties. Because the whole affair had begun to turn stale, Haig had a rare moment of clarity. He shifted the offensive objective from the center to the southern portion of the line. This removed Goff as the man in charge of the offensive and replaced him with Plumer. And as we said before, Plumer was a soldier's general. He had held the line at Ypres for two years, so he was very familiar with both the land and the men. Older than Goff, he had a kind of paternal concern for his men, always trying to keep them as safe as possible. In return, his soldiers loved him. On the 24th or 25th, 
Um, I had two different sources saying different dates. Haig made the shift official, and Plumer began to plan. He intended to strike at the German lines in a series of well-planned, short but violent jabs. The closest I can really um, figure to describe is to uh, consider like a uh, an American football team when when the team goes the offense goes no huddle, uh, a constant flurry of dink and dunk attacks, never gaining much but keeping your opponent opponent moving backwards. As the opponent becomes more and more exhausted, morale nosedives, and then at their weakest, the enemy guard drops and a long gain can be made. Plumer wanted to go for it using this particular type of plan. In four phases, he'd take the Gellervelt Plateau, each stage broken up by a slight pause to bring up the artillery. Each attack was limited in scope, aiming only for a gain of about 1,500 yards, but would then build on the other one and be well supported with artillery. So these, these attacks are building on each other, creating a real sense of momentum. Infantry would be attacking a much narrower front, only 1,000 yards about there, um, but with 10 men for each yard and with much, much more artillery than originally used at the beginning of the battle. This all added weight and was supposed to help drive these attacks home. Plumer believed that the tempo would be too fast for the Germans to cope with. He also made it very clear once an objective was taken and the infantry halted, they had to stay in constant contact with the artillery and aircraft in the rear. This would help in case of a counterattack. This gave the infantry a far greater chance of surviving the ensuing counterattack. As the plans uh, that Plumer was making came together, the action quieted down but never really stopped on the front line. This story from Edwin Vaughn, an officer of the 1st 8th Warwickshire uh, Regiment, gives an account of one of the last battles of August. On the 27th, 28th, an attempt was made to take two formerly wooded areas. These were now stripped bare, except for the charred, jagged shards of long-blasted tree trunks. Vaughn says, quote, Up the road we staggered, shells bursting around us. A man stopped dead in front of me, and exasperated, I cursed him and butted him with my knee. Very gently, he said, I'm blind, sir, and turned to show me his eyes and nose torn away by a piece of shell. Oh, God, I'm sorry, Sonny, I said. Keep going on the hard part, and left him staggering back in the darkness. A tank had churned its way slowly behind Springfield and opened fire. A moment later I looked, and nothing remained of it but a crumpled heap of iron. It had been hit by a large shell. It was now almost dark, and there was no firing from the enemy. Plowing across the final stretch of mud, I saw grenades bursting around the pillbox, and a party of British rushed in from the other side. As we all closed in, the Bosch garrison ran out with their hands up. We sent the 16 prisoners back across the open, but they had only gone a hundred yards when a German machine gun mowed them down. End quote. Vaughn and his men cleared the pillbox. Then, as he moved on, he came across more Germans that wanted to surrender. Quote, The prisoners clustered around me, bedraggled and heartbroken, telling me of the terrible time they'd been having. Quote, Nicked Eisen, nicked Trinken. Always, shells, shells, shells. I could not spare a man to take them back, so I put them into shell holes with my men who made a great fuss of them, sharing their scanty rations with them. From other shell holes from the darkness on all sides came the groans and wails of wounded men, faint, long, sobbing moans of agony and despairing shrieks. It was too horribly obvious that dozens of men with serious wounds must have crawled for safety into shell holes, and now the water was rising about them, and powerless to move, they were slowly drowning. 
Horrible visions came to me with those cries of men lying maimed out there, trusting that their pals would find them, and now dying terribly, alone, amongst the dead in the inky darkness. And we could do nothing to help them. Dunham was crying quietly beside me, and all of the men were affected by the piteous cries. End quote. Eventually, Vaughn and his men were relieved and sent back to where they had started the attack two days prior. On the return trip, Vaughn recalled, quote, The cries of the wounded had much diminished now, and as we staggered down the road, the reason was only too apparent, for the water was right over the top of the shell holes. I hardly recognized the H.G. pillbox, for it had been hit by shell after shell, and its entrance was a long mound of bodies. Crowds of soldiers had run there for cover and had been wiped out by shrapnel. I had to climb over them to enter HQ, and as I did so, a hand stretched out and clung to my equipment. Horrified, I dragged a living man from amongst the corpses. End quote. The next day, Vaughn's terrible ordeal came to an end. The reality of what he had been through settled in at the muster parade. Quote, My worst fears were realized. Standing near the cookers were four small groups of bedraggled, unshaven men from whom the quartermaster sergeants were gathering information concerning any of their pals they had seen killed or wounded. It was a terrible list. Out of our happy little band of 90 men, only 15 remained. End quote. Vaughn's tale is harrowing. Death was the constant companion of every man that fought at Passchendaele. The earth, the rain, the enemy. They killed just as efficiently and ruthlessly. The month of September, Plumer's month, was a German nightmare. The weather was fair for the most part, and the ground had dried out as much as it ever did at Passchendaele. Plumer's regular attacks made life a misery for the Germans at the front. On the 20th, the Battle of the Minen Road began. The British brought up vast numbers of artillery, more than double the heavy and medium gun numbers than what they had started with in late July. 575 heavy and over 700 medium artillery guns were needed because as the British pushed into the German defense in depth, they came upon more and more pillboxes. To better deal with the pillboxes, the British pounded away with artillery and aircraft. The clear weather meant the British air arm could be used for spotting, bombing, and strafing operations. At Menin, this played a significant role in Allied speed and success. Along a 14,000-yard front, two British and two Australian divisions advanced and made it around 1,500 yards deep into enemy territory by midday. They then dug in and began to bring up support artillery. All the while, aircraft kept a watchful eye on the Germans. Around three, the German counterattack struck, but these were sloppy and had little planning. They failed to dislodge the British from their new positions. The following five days saw a series of short, brutal, small fights as the two sides tried to dash and grab for territory. Then, on the 25th, the Germans made a concerted effort to retake a group of lost pillboxes southwest of Polygon Wood. Two German regiments advancing on a 1,800-yard front with aircraft and double the field artillery that was uh, normal for a counterattack hit the British lines. Using a box barrage fired just behind the British line, the Germans were able to isolate the targeted area. The Germans retook a group of pillboxes, but soon Allied artillery had the same isolating effect on advanced German units that theirs had had on the British and the German momentum was lost. This attack was deadly for both sides, but it highlighted the real value of these pillboxes. The 26th saw the Allies counterattack the German counterattack. The Battle of Polygon Wood was begun with considerable barrage by British artillery and machine gun fire. 
The smoke and dust made sight lines almost impossible, so the infantry advanced using only compass bearings. This is going blind into a fight, a very frightening prospect. As the Allies moved forward, the German front units began to fall back under the heavy fire and pressure. Even though the German front groups were heavily supported, they just could not hold on. The Allies again reached a good stopping point, dug in, and repelled the enemy's counterattacks. This time, though, the Germans suffered even worse and were not able to retake any lost ground. The month of September had been so bad for the Germans that one officer wrote of the whole experience it was, quote, awful, end quote, and he, quote, did not know what to do, end quote. A, a real quick word on pillboxes, by the way. Pillboxes were a defensive marvel and could maximize your strength using minimal men. This is why the Germans really, really loved them, because um, when the Allies bring in their huge armies, especially towards the end of the war, the Germans are spread fairly thin. Uh, using these pillboxes, they're able to kind of um, uh, multiply their force, which is really important. Uh, because it, uh, digging around flounders met water at a depth of only 18 inches, like we talked about earlier, trenches were out. Instead, the Germans began constructing above-ground concrete blockhouses, and these fortifications were so reliable and robust that these squat structures uh, really were only uh, in danger from direct hits from the very heaviest artillery shells um, that would crack or, or destroy them. This meant that a, a garrison of men inside, relatively small, were virtually immune to the usual artillery bombardment or attacks that would uh, take on the trenches. These close-knit squads that were inside these immune pillboxes had extremely high morale because they felt isolated um, from the rest of the world, but they were pretty much impervious to attack. The fewer amount of men also needed to man these pillboxes meant that they could be cycled out and um, with more regularity, which was another reason for their high morale. By sighting the pillboxes in the right areas, too, you could create really effective interlocking fire zones, um, and these, these would essentially protect each other. So one pillbox could stop uh, an attack on another pillbox if it's properly um, sighted. And, and really what's amazing is one pillbox could stop dozens and dozens of men, whole units, and hold them up um, indefinitely. William Fisher remembered seeing the devastating effect a pillbox had on over 50 men. He says, quote, The slope was littered with dead, both theirs and ours. I got to one pillbox to find it was just a mass of dead. And so I passed on carefully to the one ahead. Here I found about 50 men alive of the Manchesters. Never have I seen men so broken or demoralized. They were huddled up close behind the box in the last stages of exhaustion and fear. Fritz had been sniping them off all day and had accounted for 57 that day. The dead and dying lay in piles. The wounded were numerous, unattended and weak. They groaned and moaned all over the place. End quote. Each pillbox had to be attacked and cleared individually, and as Fisher relays to us, even when the pillboxes acted as shelter for, uh, for infantry in the open, they really just became kind of killing grounds because the enemy knew men would be hiding near the stout little buildings, and so the pillboxes, again, were zeroed in to be able to fire upon each other in a kind of overlapping protective um, zone. And usually surrounding the pillbox was uh, two or three belts of barbed wire, sometimes as many as 18 to 20. The standard wire had uh, barbs every foot or so and could hold up infantry indefinitely. And pillboxes in some form or another, um, they're so effective that in some form uh, or another, they would become battlefield fixtures for the next 40 or more years. I'm, I'm sure um, in Afghanistan, Iraq, anywhere where there's combat today, there's a some form of modern pillbox.
As the British tactics and strategy shifted, so too did the Germans. In July and August, there had been loads of confusion as reserve units or replacement units got caught out of position and were unable to support the front. Eingrief divisions had been able to retake lost areas on several occasions, but these were usually costly affairs. The defense in depth utilized by the Germans recognized that ground would be lost, and that was fine so long as the enemy paid a dear price for each foot. Plumer had altered the rules now, though. And so instead of trying to win everything in one go, the Allies were content to take what the enemy gave them. Ludendorff had to figure a way to put an end to this, or else the Germans would find themselves having willingly given up their entire line. To better blunt the initial Allied advances, Ludendorff had all support and reserve machine guns sent to the forward zone. There they were positioned with four to eight machine guns every 20 or so yards. Some Eingrief were moved up much closer to the front line so that they could counterattack faster and would have to cross less mud to get to the fight. And the rest of the Eingrief were held back a little bit further to mount more methodical and prepared and precise counterstrikes a day or two after the initial t- attack. Then the attacks of late September forced Ludendorff even further. He called for more attritional attacks. These were intended not to gain ground, but to draw Allied infantry into a pointless fight. The more and more infantry that were sent to the front lines, the more and more infantry there were for the Germans to bomb and kill. Once engaged, the only objective was to kill as many Allied soldiers as possible. Added to that, Ludendorff also called for, for uh, more use of gas attacks whenever possible. And again, this is the, uh, the vaunted mustard gas starts to be uh, make an appearance at this point. With new tactics and concepts in play, the Germans began a series of counterattacks in late September. On the 30th, in the misty early morning, German artillery began to rain down near the Menin Road. Just after 5 a.m., the German infantry appeared out of the mist and attacked with flamethrowers and grenades. Though they struck hard, the Germans were stopped and repelled by accurate British small arms. Under what felt like heavy pressure, the Allied infantry sent up SOS flares, but the thick, soupy mist caused the British artillery not to see the distress signals. The Allied guns remained silent, but the British infantry was able to counterattack and retake the lost ground. On the 1st of October, at 5 a.m., another whirlwind German bombardment began. Immediately, the British forward positions were isolated and assaulted by waves of German infantry. The attacks continued to be repulsed until late morning. Then the Germans massed by the men in road and again attacked. On and on through the day, German infantry attacked and was sent reeling in confusion. The day was brighter, and so SOS flares sent up by the front-line British infantry were seen by the artillery. The well-aimed field gun fire kept the Germans from building any kind of momentum, and on the 3rd of October, German forces were planning on mounting another series of counterattacks to make up for the lost ground. The Allies, this time, though, had other plans. The Battle of Brudesend was an attempt to once and for all take the Gewelt Plateau. Moving along a 14,000-yard front, the Allied infantry pushed towards the German line. As they did so, they were shocked to encounter Germans rising from the sludge in no-man's land and even popping out of craters. Clearing these concealed killers took time but didn't slow the advance. The Allied line moved on, forcing the Germans to retreat or, or be overrun. With the German infantry for the most part cleared, British infantry began the deadly process of clearing pillboxes. One by one, pillboxes were emptied by a combination of bravery and smart fighting. Of the many Victoria Crosses won at Passchendaele, a considerable amount were earned by men that took on pillboxes. The success of the attack was so great and so fast that there was a moment when even General Plumer 
was tempted to try for a full breakout. The fact that the Germans still had a large reserve ready to go and the heavy casualties suffered by some units already snapped Plumer back to reality. The 7th of October saw the Germans finally recognize reality. The shifting of the frontline units, the new orders for suppressing artillery fire, and some small but significant withdrawals from the salient made it clear. The Germans knew their position was impossible to hold. Once the Gelluvelt Plateau was taken, the Germans would be too exposed. Speeding up this deterioration of the German position, Haig ordered a fresh attack for the 9th. It would take an entire podcast series to cover each attack in depth, but on this one, known as the Battle of Pulacapel, I'm going to give you a snapshot of a small portion of the entire, uh, the entire battle to give you a better idea of the chaos. On a 10-mile front, units of the 1st West Riding Regiment and the 2nd East Lancashire Regiment moved in to attack a new German unit to the front line, the 16th, or also known as the Iron Division. The main thrust was to clear the area for a future attack on the town of Passchendaele itself. Heavy rain preceded the advance. On the night of the 8th-9th, rain meant that the men had to clamber two or more miles from their assembly area to the front through this knee-deep mud. Major Cuthbert Fox gives us an idea of what it was like to move in this mess. Quote, There was no ground to walk on. The earth had been plowed up by shells not once, but over and over again, and so thoroughly that nothing solid remained to step on. There was just loose, disintegrated, far-flung earth, merging into slimy, treacherous mud, and, and water round shell holes so interlaced that the circular form of only the largest and most recent made could be distinguished, end quote. Whole units fell far behind and were lost. These men were unable to reach the jump-off spot on time, which meant that the advance was bound to have huge gaps in the line. When they finally got the order to move forward just after 5 a.m., these gaps would prove fatal. As the morning grew old, the skies cleared and men on both sides could see and kill more efficiently. To the left of the Allied line, a British unit crossed a flooded stream. They'd used a raised road or causeway and in so doing inadvertently made themselves excellent targets. German pillboxes near the town of Bellevue and machine guns that were hidden in shell holes opened up. This unit was ripped up, but continued forward. They finally had to stop when they came upon some belts of barbed wire. The high-explosive rounds that had been fired by the artillery in the bombardment were designed to cut the barbed wire, but the mud had protected it, and the infantry was stopped in its place. The whole British unit was pinned down, Men had to squirm deep into the mud face down or dare sliding into shell holes to find shelter. Carrier pigeons were sent to uh, give news of the uncut wire and request assistance, but the poor birds were too frightened to fly on and just flapped aimlessly around their handlers. The other unit of West Riding uh, British soldiers made almost no ground at all. Captain Godfrey Buxton said of the experience, quote, the mud was so dreadful that it was impossible to move in any line formation because it was only possible to walk on the ridges between the shell holes. So I gave the order to open into formation of sections. We then crossed under some tall trees on top of the ravebeak. We were now going under tremendous machine gun fire, and we had to go forward in short rushes and then lie flat in the shell holes, mostly covered by water. Many bullets dropping around you within a few inches, splashing mud into your face. We naturally lost a number of men there, end quote. A stream in the valley known as Ravebeak was too swollen with the previous days of rain. The whole thing had turned into a quagmire anywhere from 30 to 50 yards wide. Small groups of men waded through the waist-deep water, but never in much force and always at significant risk. 
One of the East Lancashire units had made good progress even though they had crossed old, unused trenches now filled with water. These trenches were like small moats as this, the unit crossed, though um, they did come under intense enfilading pillbox fire. Again, the advance was stunted because of heavy casualties and a complete lack of mobility. Finally, the other East Lancashire unit, the last unit available, made significant progress in this area, sticking to the sandy high ground of the Ypres Rollers Railway. German artillery and machine guns south of Passchendaele opened up and slowed the advance. Even so, though, by 10-ish, the unit was within striking distance of their objective. Problem was, they had moved so far ahead of the other units in the attack that, there was, uh, that they became isolated, and around noon, this last unit available had to fall back to their original position with the rest of the British infantry uh, before nightfall. By the end of the day, with all the confusion and mishaps, the whole advance had only gained about 500 yards. German counterattacks had retaken most of the territory that they had briefly lost. This minuscule gain cost the Allies around 11,000 men. The Battle of Pol Capel had put severe stress on German manpower. It was becoming more and more difficult for Ludendorff to scrounge up men to man the front lines. Because if the Allies lost around 11,000 men, you can guarantee that the Germans lost quite a few more. Of course, in this situation, German losses are unknown, but the records state they were, quote, considerable and that the sufferings, uh, the, that, quote, the sufferings of the troops bore no relation to the advantage obtained. This should probably actually be the motto for the entire war. British successes in August, September, and early October amounted to very little in a strategic sense. Ten weeks of fighting had gained the ground that Haig had predicted it would have uh, only taken about two days to cover back in late July. After the brood scene victory, Haig should have called the whole thing off, consolidated the meager gains, and been content. Winter and more lousy weather were on the way. The main objective of the operation, Passchendaele Ridge, was still in German hands. Rulers and the coastal U-boat bases remained active German operational spots, um, and so the uh, and the attrition meant to wear down the Germans had the same effect or wearing effect on the British. The whole affair was an abject failure, and Haig had every right, or, or actually, no, he had every reason to call off the offensive. Instead, in truly Haig fashion, he argued for the continuation of the attack. His reasons were many, and they were suspect from day one, uh, but I'll give them anyways. Uh, Russia was officially out of the war, so he said that was a good reason. Uh, he said the French were about to launch a major offensive on the Asne or Asen. Uh, the Cambrai, Cambrai operation was in the works. An Italian attack was also in the works. Uh, the main point Haig was arguing was that, quote, the enemy is faltering and a good decisive blow might lead to decisive results, end quote. So for these reasons, Haig is arguing that the Flanders fiasco had to go on, essentially just to draw German attention and resources and energy and manpower away from all the other potential operations. Haig isn't necessarily wrong here, and so he got his way, and the next few weeks, Passchendaele remained a waking nightmare for the men living and fighting in Flanders. In the words of John Buchan, Quote, the last stages of the Third Battle of Ypres were probably the muddiest combat ever known in the history of war, end quote. Goff himself wrote of the battlefield at this point, quote, battered, beaten, and torn by a torrent of shell and explosive, the soil shaken and reshaken, fields tossed into new and fantastic shapes, end quote. One of the men that witnessed the grinding away of hope on the front was 2nd Lieutenant Jimmy Naylor. He said, quote, It wore you down. The weather, the lack of rations, everything seemed to be against you. 
There didn't seem to be anything left. You were wet through for days on end. We never thought we'd get out alive. End quote. The fight would continue despite the hellish conditions. On the 9th, Haig told reporters that, quote, the enemy has only flesh and blood against us, end quote. The last weeks of September and the first week of October had gone well. They were costly, but good weeks. Now Haig could almost taste his breakout victory, and he wanted to seal the deal. A push for Passchendaele itself, the small town sitting 150 feet above sea level, the point of this whole battle, was the next move. Of course, Haig's army was a ghost of its former self, and the units he would use for this last push were fresh Dominion troops. Lucky for Haig, the men of the Anzac were some of the most capable fighters of the whole war. On October 12th, Allied infantry moved forward. The mud and rain had made the ground so waterlogged that artillery could not be moved up to support the attack. A correspondent for the Daily Express commented, quote, the weather changed for the worst last night, although fortunately too late to hamper the execution of our plans. The rain was heavy and constant throughout the night. It was still beating down steadily when the day broke chill and cheerless, with a thick blanket of mist completely shutting off the battlefield. During the morning, it slackened to a dismal drizzle, but by this time the roads, field, and footways were covered with semi-liquid mud and the torn ground beyond Ypres had become, in places, a horrible quagmire, end quote. A combination of exhaustion and uncut wire forced the Anzac forces to halt. The modest gains they had made throughout the day were quickly lost when the Germans counterattacked. The Anzac units retreated to their starting positions, battered and bloody. The whole misguided, miserable fight cost the Allies 13,000 men. The New Zealanders lost some 3,000, 845 of whom were dead or stranded, wounded in no man's land. It is considered one of the worst days in New Zealand military history. The Germans fared little better, losing 1,000 prisoners and thousands of dead and wounded. For the Germans, these losses were irreplaceable, but both Ludendorff and Losberg believed the town of Passchendaele had to be held. If the Germans withdrew further east, the ground was untenable and indefensible. They would stay and fight, or they were likely to lose the war. Again, bad weather moved in. Towards the end of October, the rain and mist and clouds really started to affect things. Haig recognized the futility of fighting in such lousy weather and called an end to action until the weather improved. October 22nd, though, played out like all the others. The Allies advanced and gained ground. The mud made movement impossible. The Germans struck back and dislodged some of the Allied positions, but not all of them. By nightfall, the two sides had burnt out and waited to do it all again. Not all generals approved of Haig's methods even at this late stage in the battle. Brigadier General Napier Johnson recorded his thoughts as, quote, My opinion is that the senior generals who direct these operations are not conversant with the conditions. Mud, cold, rain, and no shelter for the men. Finally, the Germans are not so played out as they make out. All our attacks recently lack penetration, and the whole history of the war is that when thorough preparation is not made, we fail. End quote. One benefit of this particular fighting was that German artillery attention was drawn away from the Canadian divisions prepping for the upcoming second attack on Passchendaele. The Canadians were the best choice for the end of this drawn-out affair. General Sir Arthur Curry had been aware of the slaughterhouse in the Ypres salient since 1915, and he predicted the Canadians, if ordered to take Passchendaele, would lose 16,000 men or so. Curry, it seems, was a bit of a prophet. The plan called for three separate and clearly defined phases. 
On the 26th of October, the Canadian advance would capture its objective, breaking the German first line for a gain of 500 yards. A few days later, on the 30th, a little more ground was taken, of course, as always in Passchendaele, at a high cost to both sides. Three Victoria Crosses were earned in the fighting on this one day. New Canadian divisions replaced the Canadian divisions at the front line, and the line was consolidated and strengthened. A few days more, and then the final phase started on the morning of November 6th. The fresh Canadians, fully supported, took their objectives in only three hours, finally capturing the destroyed and unrecognizable little town of Passchendaele. Rifleman Sid Gully put it best, saying, quote, I always had a horror of Ypres before we went up there, and I have a much worse fear of it now, end quote. The Battle of Third Ypres, or Passchendaele, was finally over. There would continue to be small actions after the 6th, and fighting in the area never really stopped. There were just no more great offensives. Haig remained in command of the BEF, and Plumer would eventually get his due as a reliable soldier, the man that had shown what Beitenhold could achieve. Goff was the man in charge when the German offensive of the next spring sent the British Army reeling. He was made a scapegoat and dismissed and sent home. Somehow, oddly enough, while researching, I found Goff has like a 70-plus page Wikipedia, while Plumer, is, uh, he's got one page. It's a, it's a very strange, um, you would think it would be the other way around. Ludendorff has quite a bit more action to cover throughout the war, so I'll wait for a future episode on him to really get deep into his full story. Lossberg, the defensive whiz kid for the Germans, eventually retired and died quietly at his home, uh, maybe the man most responsible for the murderous defenses of the German armies put up throughout the war. Casualty lists for this battle are much debated. The safest thing to bet, though, is that each side suffered around 240 to 260,000 uh, dead, wounded, or missing, which puts the entire battle at around 500,000. Uh, for the British, the losses were truly incredible. The experienced veteran armies of healthy, strong young men from the home isles vanished. Corporal H.C. Baker brings it home, telling us, quote, A time was set for parade and roll call. There weren't too many of us left to answer our names. If there was no response when a name was called, the sergeant would shout, quote, Anybody know anything about him? Sometimes someone replied. More often there was silence. My impression was that we had won the ridge and lost the battalion. End quote. This little scene of reckoning played out throughout the BEF. From this point until the end of the war, the BEF would be made of Dominion forces and recruits that had been originally deemed unfit, and then whatever the savaged remnants of the three-plus years of war could be scrounged up of the original army. The Germans took an absolute drubbing at Passchendaele. The German army was not only fighting in the Flanders sector, but all along the Western Front. They were also fighting on the Austrian section of the front, in Italy, in Turkey, and for a time in the East, as well as in Africa. Any losses that they suffered were, were irreplaceable, and their, their strength was so spread out. To get hit so often, so hard, in a crucial spot in the battlefield was absolutely brutal. There really is no way to tell how many of the Germans uh, died at Flanders. So many of the bodies were never collected or accounted for. It's very likely that the Germans suffered more um, than the Allies, and, and some speculate that they suffered as many as 400,000 deaths, um, but there's no way to tell accurately. Given the combined cost of this whole offensive, again, you're talking, uh, you know, the low estimate of 500,000 men 
were lost, and the high estimate would be somewhere in the six to 700,000 men lost. The debate that has raged ever since Passchendaele uh, is, is really just a simple question. Was it worth it? And uh, to answer that question would take, again, would take another full podcast just devoted to that. I just w- want to open it up to you guys. Um, my opinion, I can kind of see both sides, honestly. On the one hand, I, it's argued that, yes, Haig m- got most of what he wanted. Uh, Germans were indeed forced to keep 88 divisions in the Flanders area to hold it. This not only kept those units uh, in the grind, constantly losing men and equipment, but it kept them occupied. If they were tied down in Flanders, they couldn't really be attacking the weakened and mutinous uh, French army. They couldn't be used to break the Italians. Um, Haig also believed that the offensive almost broke the Germans, and there is some proof of this. The German general staff uh, itself wrote, quote, Germany had been brought near to certain destruction by the Flanders Battle of 1917, end quote. The units Germany lost in the battle also had to be taken into account. The attrition of 3rd Ypres took from Germany veteran units it could ill afford to lose, and we'll see this in the Kaiserschlacht the following year. The veteran units that were lost in Passchendaele probably would have played a huge role in the uh, late-stage um, attacks by Ludendorff, one of the main reasons that those huge offensives started to fail in, in 1918 is that the they progressively got weaker and weaker because Ludendorff's men were more and more ineffective. Um, so it might have been very helpful for him to have had these veteran units. By the end of the battle, the German divisions were, were just totally full of novices and replacements, really the wrong men to hold the line against Um, elite Anzac or Canadian attacks. All that being said, though, I can see why Haig is is a somewhat reviled character. The continuation of the attacks seem insane now, uh, knowing what we know. The British suffered the same amount of casualties or or slightly less than the Germans, um, depending on which account you uh, look at. Um, as far as the casualties go, it's possible, again, that the Germans suffered quite a bit more, but it's uh, fairly agreed upon that it seems like they were pretty equal. So if your attritional fighting loses just as many men of your own as the enemy's, it's really not an effective attritional campaign. Uh, worse still, the Germans had another army in the east that they could recall and replace their losses. So that ar- army on the eastern front that was fighting the Russians, that's been freed up and is on its way to the West. So your attrition, uh, where you're losing the same amount of men, A, that's bad, and B, attrition doesn't work if the enemy has an extra army um, and one more army than you do. Uh, The British, they had no such ace in the hole. The French military was quickly recovering its morale, and it's unlikely Ludendorff had any intention of ever really attacking them anyway. So uh, it seems like Ludendorff had no idea. Uh, in fact, the British had no idea, but uh, they, they didn't know how bad the mutinies were in the French army. So it doesn't seem like Ludendorff was ever going to attack them anyways. I guess my what it boils down to me um, for what I've researched in this particular episode, Haig probably doesn't deserve the beating he gets nowadays, Um, But there are good reasons that he gets it. As Keegan puts it, as only he can, uh, quote, On the psalm, he sent the flower of British youth to death and mutilation. At Passchendaele, he had tipped the survivors into the slough of Despond. All right, that is the Battle of Passchendaele. Stay until the end for an amazing story from the incredible man named Harry Patch, Great Britain's, quote, last fighting Tommy. Uh, It's a story I came upon, and I just, I really, I've got to share it with you. So please stick around after these quick announcements, and we'll uh, we'll officially end this in a couple of minutes. Um, I am stunned at how few people know about this battle, first off. Uh, One of the things, as I've been posting in the last uh, month, 
the amount of people that say, oh, I've never heard of it, or what is that, or, you know, comment about, oh, I know Verdun or the Somme or whatever, and they don't know Passchendaele, it's, it's amazing. Almost all of our, our mental images, as I said at the top um, of the first episode there, almost all of our mental images of the First World War stem from the mud of Flanders, and yet few know really anything about what happened there. Uh, it's like the the trauma was so significant that our, our collective unconscious stepped in and, and just wiped the memory out. Uh, one of the great horrors of World War I and Passchendaele in particular is, is that many, just the huge numbers of missing men, people that just existed and then stopped existing. The mud uh, swallowed men whole in Flanders and and to this day, farmers are still plowing up bones of the lost and unknown. The most brutal and touching tribute to these poor souls is on the grave markers um, at various cemeteries where, uh, where soldiers are interred. And it reads, uh, quote, A soldier of the great war, known unto God, end quote. Of the 12,000 servicemen buried at one of these memorial cemeteries, some 8,300 remain completely unidentified. I guess I just, I hope this episode helps to bring some life back to the, um, the quote, lost victory and keeps the memory of those days in Flanders alive. It's really important to me that, I, I gotta admit, as I was reading this and researching, I, I've had a number of occasions where I've got tears popping out of my eyes because just some of these accounts were so, so harrowing to read about. Um, I hope that this has done a little bit of justice, and um, I hope that it helps to keep some of the uh, memory of these actions and of these men alive. Um, the sources, I used a number of sources this week, so the I'm just going to leave them in the episode notes. Um, so check those out if you want to check out some of the books. I will say that the sources I used were really, really helpful. Um, Nick Lloyd's Passchendaele was fantastic. And as always, John Keegan's First World War is a great uh, source. So check those out. Um, next up, there will be a smaller but no less exciting episode on Operation Jaywick. The Patreon fictional account of Passchendaele will cover a pretty famous little event um, that comes out of this battle. I'm going to do it from, I'm going to write it from a uh, particular person's point of view. So definitely check that out in the Patreon if you're interested. And uh, finally, thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Cullen. And now I want to bring you the story from Harry Patch from the book Last Post and why he always kept it low. On my 19th birthday, 17 June 1917, we were in the trenches at Passchendaele. We didn't go into action, but I saw it all happen. Haig put a three-day barrage on the Germans and thought, well, there can't be much left of them. I think it was the Yorkshires and Lancashires that went over. I watched them as they came out of their dugouts, and the German machine guns just mowed them down. I doubt whether any of them reached the front line. A couple of weeks after that, we moved to Pilkham Ridge. I can still see the bewilderment and fear on the men's faces as we went over the top. We crawled because if you stood up, you'd be killed. All over the battlefield, the wounded were lying there, English and German, all crying for help. But we weren't like the Good Samaritan in the Bible. We were the robbers who passed by and left them. You couldn't stop to help them. I came across a Cornishman who was ripped from shoulder to his waist with shrapnel, his stomach on the ground beside him. A bullet wound is clean. Shrapnel tears you all to pieces. As I got to him, he said, Shoot me. Before I could draw my revolver, he died. I was with him for the last 60 seconds of his life. He gasped one word, mother. That one word has run through my brain for 88 years. I will never forget it. 
I think it is the most sacred word in the English language. It wasn't a cry of distress or pain. It was one of surprise and joy. I learned later that his mother was already dead, so he felt he was going to join her. We got as far as their second line and four Germans stood up. They didn't get up to run away, they got up to fight. One of them came running towards me. He couldn't have had any ammunition or he would have shot me, but he came towards me with his bayonet pointing at my chest. I fired and hit him in the shoulder. He dropped his rifle but still came stumbling on. I can only suppose that he wanted to kick our Lewis gun into the mud, which would have made it useless. I had three live rounds left in my revolver and could have killed him with the first. What should I do? I had seconds to make my mind up. I gave him his life. I didn't kill him. I shot him above the ankle and above the knee and brought him down. I knew he would be picked up, passed back to a POW camp, and at the end of the war, he would rejoin his family. Six weeks later, a countryman of his killed my three mates. If that had happened before I met that German, I would have damn well killed him. But we never fired to kill. My number one, Bob, used to keep the gun low and wound them in the legs, bring them down. Never fired to kill them. As far as I know, he never killed a German. I never did either. Always kept it low. <laughs>